0: I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm chapter twenty-six. We find yet another psalm that attests uh, to the vindication of the Lord's Messiah. Psalm 26, it's a psalm of David. It begins like this, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, for I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with the hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep away my soul with the sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men. Those men in whose hands are evil devices and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity, redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. Please join me as we pray. Uh, Our gracious God and Father, as we come to sit under Your Word this evening, we pray that Your Spirit would illuminate our eyes, to behold Christ as He is presented to us in the Scriptures. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as you've seen over the past uh, several months, at least once or twice a month, we've uh, been trying to give consideration to uh, the prayer book of Christ's church, uh, the Psalms. Uh, And I think, I, I hope we're giving justice to this, but by a careful assessment over these past 25 psalms, I hope that you are seeing that this is not simply a mere collection of old-timey hymns from long ago, but rather they are inspired passages that direct us to Christ's person and work in a variety of ways. Uh, Jesus himself says this in Luke chapter 24 as he speaks to uh, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He says, Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not written that the Messiah should suffer these things and enter into his glory?" And then it says, "...beginning with Moses and the prophets and even the Psalms, begins to expound to them those things concerning himself." We want to take the words of Christ seriously. If Jesus says the Psalms are about him, then that gives us a rule of thumb to help think, where should each of these psalms be directing our attention? And Of course, we find that these psalms are not cookie-cutter psalms. They're not leading us along the same trajectory to Christ. Uh, as if every psalm is just simply a reworded version of the previous psalm. We are told of Christ's person and work and and who He is and even of His heart for sinners and His heart and His love for the Father. All of these psalms hitting one facet or another of Christ's person and work from a uh, multitude, uh, a variety of angles. Well, we see that same truth tonight when we approach this particular psalm. And I I want us to keep this reality before us. The psalms are intended to train us how to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Unapologetically. And we see that here even in this psalm. Um, I'd like us to consider three things in this short psalm. First, I would like to consider... David's prayer in verses 1 and 2, that prayer for vindication. And secondly, I'd like us to consider the wicked assembly of verses 4 to 7. And then finally, I'd like us to consider the righteous assembly of verses 8 to 12. And in one sense, you could call this a tale of two assemblies, because you see here in this passage, um the psalmist speaks of two different assemblies two different congregations two different if you will churches so the cry of david the wicked assembly and the righteous assembly right off of uh right out the the gates david prays a prayer again we see it's a psalm or a prayer of david It's what the superscript says but it's a prayer that i think many of us would find difficult to pray on our own standing. That prayer for vindication. Vindicate me, O Yahweh. What a frightful prayer to pray. And yet, David, under inspiration of the Spirit, prays it. And this is, in fact, not the first time David has prayed such a prayer. In chapter 7, he has prayed that very Prayer, Lord, vindicate me according to my righteousness. It will not be the last time that he prays this prayer. He prayed again in chapter thirty-five and again in chapter forty-three, praying that he will be judged according to his own integrity. Who is it that can pray such a prayer? That 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 word there, integrity. It's how the ESV puts it. I think it's a good word. Quite literally, David is saying here. Uh, vindicate me because I have walked in uh, my perfection. In other words, this is not a superficial prayer. How many of us, when uh, we were kids, arguing with our siblings, feel like we have been wronged, even though secretly, deep down, we knew that we were not the one. We are not totally in uh, the clear. We are not fully innocent. Yet, what do we do? We go and ask our parents. Mom, Dad, my brother or sister has done X, Y, or Z. Please do what's right. And then your parents begin to ask those probing questions. Was that really what happened? Uh, Your brother hit you. Did you do something to provoke that? No, not me. I didn't do anything. And as the parent begins to examine the incident and hit the the claims that uh, the, the, the complainant is making, you begin to see, even as a young child, the holes in your argument. And yet here is the king of Israel standing before the Lord with full confidence saying, I have walked in my perfection. Vindicate me. Don't just vindicate me. Prove me. Examine me. You see that here in verse 2. Put my claims to the test. The imagery here that we see in this particular verse is that the testing of the strength or purity of a metal uh, as it is put through the fire. You could quite literally translate verse 2 as something like this Smelt my kidneys, my innermost parts. Not just his outer actions. He's saying the deepest core of my being, put it through the ringer, put it under the microscope. See if there is any unrighteousness in me. Because I have walked according, I've walked the course of my life with utmost fidelity. I have walked according to truth. This is a high stakes prayer. Here the psalmist is saying, Examine not only my outer works but my inner life. Try to find it. Try to find any part of me that has failed to live in accordance with your precepts. Now, the psalmist goes on as he now describes his actions with two different groups of people the wicked assembly in verses 4 to 7 and the righteous assembly of verses 8 to 12. Here what we see is he, as he looks at the wicked assembly all about him, here he describes himself as the man of Psalm 1. Notice the language here. I do not sit with the wicked. Those men of falsehood. In fact, verses 4 and 5 is bookended with the same refrain. I have not sat with the wicked, nor will I sit with the wicked. He has made a determined, conscious Decision not to have any association with those who practice wickedness. In particular, the liar and the hypocrite, those men of falsehoods, quite literally, those men who conceal themselves, the men who, who lie and wait for ambush. We're reminded of this particular truth throughout the rest of Scripture. Bad company corrupts good character. We all know the dangers of peer pressure. And here the psalmist says, I will not capitulate to any of those. I'm not going to stand by the fire and warm my hands and laugh at the jokes or join in uh, the schemes of such wickedness. I have kept my way pure. He has kept his ways separate from the wicked. Here that is that repeated imagery of one who is separating himself, not in the self-righteous, holy roller type of way, but in the proper Psalm 1 sense of the word in which he is not associating and joining hands and playing the part of the wicked gang. In fact, as he has kept himself separate from the wicked, he now pleads that he would be set apart in devotion to the Lord. You look at verse 6. There's this language here. He, he, He asks, look at this, I wash my hands in innocence and I go around your altar, O Lord. Let me circle about it, proclaiming thanksgiving and telling of all of your wonderful deeds. Here he is describing the work of the priesthood. You read Exodus chapter 30. David is asking that he be allowed to take the prerogative of something that belonged to the priests of Aaron. This is, again, quite a tall order. And it should tip our hat that something different is going on here. David is a Judahite. He is not of the tribe of Levi. And yet, he is asking to act as a priest as he makes those ritual processions so that he might enter into the holy place. Something that is reserved, not even for Israel's king, but something that was reserved only for the high priest once a year. In other words, this is not a casual worshiper. We might even put it like this, this is not a common worshiper. This is not the prayer of the layman. This is the prayer of a particular individual, one who has assumed the role of both king and priest. It says it is a prayer of David, and yet he's praying to participate in the priestly functions in entering the Holy of Holies. And here we see the purpose in it. There's there's a double purpose that he has for entering the holy place. That he might give thanks to the Lord. And that he might instruct the righteous assembly in the wonderful works of God. That language here that we see of wonderful works or wonderful deeds, it's almost a technical term in the Old Testament. When you come across that, you need to be thinking of the Exodus. Exodus. The great moments of God's redemptive acts of deliverance as he saved his people from darkness and sin and separated them, leading them to their heavenly destination. In other words, this king priest figure has disassociated himself with the wicked assembly so that he might be a part of the holy assembly. And you see that here in verses 8 to 12 that righteous assembly. And here in verse 8, we see where his heart, where all of his deepest longing and affections are fixated. Where is it that he wants to be? He's very clear. O oh Lord, I love the habitation of Your house and the place where Your glory dwells. It's the one thing that he is seeking after, to dwell in the presence of the Maker of heaven and earth, to dwell even in the Holy of Holies. Even as in the prior section he spoke of the separation that he had in separating himself uh, from the counsel of the wicked and not participating in their deeds, now he recognizes likewise that there is a coming sift that is about to take place. There is a purge that is set to transpire where the Lord will sweep away the wicked and will scatter them like the chaff. Once again, we have those echoes of Psalm chapter 1 reverberating and ringing in our ears. Notice once again the contrast that the psalmist here makes between himself and the wicked. Now, it's a contrast of hands. If you look here back in verse 6, this Davidic priest figure is the man of clean hands. He's washed his hands of innocence. Draws our attention back already to Psalm chapter 24. Who is it that can ascend the mountain of the Lord? It is the one with clean hands and a pure heart. According to uh, to Psalms 24, this is the man qualified to ascend the heavenly gates of Zion. And yet, that contrast there, verse 6, he has clean hands, are now contrasted with the hands of bloodshed and violence we see in verses 9 and 10 those men who hold in their hands not clean hands, but hands full of evil devices and bribes. It's as if they've got a handful of cash waiting to bribe the judge to act unjustly for their own personal gain. A repeated theme that we've seen so far throughout the Psalms. People, wicked men who are Using their resources to exploit the humble, the poor, the needy, and the afflicted. And here the psalm singer, the man of this prayer, says, I'm not like that. Verse 11, as for me, they might do this, but not me. As for me, we hear this repeated phrase, I will walk in my integrity. This is bookended with that, both the very beginning of the chapter and the very end, the very same phrase, I have walked and I will continue to walk according to my integrity, quite literally, according to my perfection. And so he prays that the Lord will redeem his life and deliver him from destruction. Clean hands, clean heart but also steady feet. Verse 1, he has trusted in the Lord without staggered feet. He has not stumbled along the way. And now in verse 12, he, he, he asserts his perfection, his integrity. My feet have remained steady. In other words, this man who is praying, has walked according to the cleanness of his heart, his hands, his feet. In terms of his disposition, in terms of his work, in terms of the course of his entire life, it has remained consistently pure. And now this psalm of David, as David speaks under inspiration of the Spirit, says, Lord, vindicate me, examine me, sift me, test me, prove my worth and vindicate who I am. And he does so, again, for a particular purpose. The very last line of this psalm, he says that in doing so, he will attest to this very fact that he will bless the Lord in the midst of the righteous assembly. The word there for assembly is the Hebrew word kahal, we see it in Greek, it's a simple, simple, simple word that means assembly. But I think maybe have certain connotations that would help us understand what he's getting at. The church. It's the same thing we see in Hebrews chapter two. Although the author of Hebrews is citing a different Psalm, Psalm twenty-two, it's almost word for word the same prayer as as the, the great liturgist leads the church. Uh, in singing the praises of God. He will declare the Lord's name in the midst of the assembly. Who is it that can pray such a prayer as this? Now, it's said to be a prayer of David. But just as we see with so many psalms, it might be a prayer of David, but it is not a prayer about David. Here is a man of Davidic stock when we see it's a prayer of David, we should be thinking the king of the redeemed. And yet, even though he is of Davidic stock, he is a man with perfect heart and priestly conduct. He is both king and priest. One who prays that he might enter the holy place. And in doing so, he prays that he might vindicate it, that he might lead the church in praise to God. Psalm 26 is a prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here we find the Messiah examined and put through the fire and tested and found to be blameless and perfect according to all that He has done. Here we find the Messiah who, upon being examined, has qualified to ascend the heights of Zion on account of His clean hands and pure heart. Here is the Messiah who is both king and priest according to a very different order. Not the order of Aaron, but as Psalm 110 tells us, it is the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Here is Christ, the psalm singer, the liturgist, and the worship leader of His church. Here is Christ vindicated. By his resurrection from the dead. Isn't that the very substance of what we hear in the prayers in the opening chapters of Acts? Or in the sermons of the opening chapters of Acts? It was not possible for the grave to hold Christ. Why? On account of His sinlessness. On account of His perfection. Christ's resurrection is the vindication. It is the justification of His righteousness before a watching world. of one who is the righteous man of Psalm 1, who, though kept separate from sinners, becomes the wellspring of life and righteousness for sinners. The one who leads the assembly of the redeemed, the assembly of the pardon, into shouts of praise and thanksgiving for all the wondrous works of God in both creation and in redemption. Just as the Lord delivered a sinful nation from bondage, so that same Lord, through His Son, delivers a sinful people out of bondage. Not bondage to a political nation, but bondage to sin, to Satan, and to death. Here we find the prayer of Christ as the great worship leader of the church. In a very real sense, we do not have a worship leader here on stage. I think this is something the church needs to reclaim a sense of the wonder of. Just as we've seen elsewhere, that even when the preacher comes to the pulpit and ministers God's Word, and in one sense we could say, yes, it's him preaching, but in a very real sense it is Christ who is preaching from on high. Him who is speaking from heaven. And yet we find in similar matter, as the assembly of the redeemed gather every Lord's day, the one who leads us in the worship of the great and triune God is the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the true worship leader. Big W, big L even if there is another person on stage. Shouldn't that shape our view of public worship? Then when we gather together for song, it is not about having the spotlight on the person on the stage. To do so, deflects and detracts, the one who is the real worship leader. The one who both leads us into worship and the one who is the proper object of our worship. Christ who as the mediator leads us into worship. And Christ who as God from eternity past, the Son of God, is the one who is to receive our object in adoration and affection. The Psalms help us to understand truly what proper worship looks like. That when we pray this prayer, when we sing this psalm, we are joining in the words of Christ Himself who alone is worthy to pray this prayer. Now because we're united to Christ, now because we're, we come on the, the righteousness of Christ, with Christ as the One who leads the assembly in this prayer, we can pray as the church that the Lord would vindicate His people. Sinners though we are. Because when Christ looks at His church, though Satan may accuse and condemn us of our own sins, the Lord tells Satan to shut up. Isn't that the image that we see in Zechariah 3? The great high priest standing before uh, the courts of heaven and he's covered in his own excrement and filth and Satan at his side accusing him of his own sins, his own filth, his own dirtiness. And the Lord, as he looks at his own high priest, Joshua, and as he looks at Satan, the accuser, not giving false accusations, but giving true accusations of the sinfulness of his high priest, the Lord turns to Satan and says, Stuff it. And then he commands that his high priest be washed and given new clean robes. Who is it that can bring a charge against God's elect? It is God alone who justifies. And it is because of that great truth that we have, that we have been justified in Christ, that we can sing this prayer, not on the basis of our own works, but because we are joining in the the song of the great worship leader who is instructing us to pray this prayer and to sing this song as we recognize that this song is ultimately a song about the Lord Jesus Christ. As He is the real worship leader of His church. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, as we uh, consider this psalm, we pray that You would continue to train us uh, to read Your Word aright, that we might see Christ in every page of Scripture. And that we might join in the song of the redeemed as is led by our great worship leader, our elder brother, our redeemer, the friend of sinners, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.